a man's religion always degenerates into a market. Professional religions always figure out ways to capitalize on the gnawing spiritual hunger in the human heart. Today, our Bible teacher, Dave Wardson, takes us to the first century temple as Jesus inaugurates his public ministry. Our text is the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 12 to 25. And our question is, how does Jesus Christ feel about a Madison Avenue-style religion? I think that if you wanted to pick a symbol of the American culture, I think many years from now when archaeologists dig up the remains of Christ hasn't returned, which I believe that he will, but if Christ doesn't return and our culture were to go into demise like the Egyptian culture, the Babylonian cu uh, culture, then I think that when the archaeologists dig us up and they dig up one of our malls, they're going to say that's the epitome, that's what the U.S. culture stands for. You can go to Detroit, you can go to Chicago, you go to Nashville, you go to New York. Everywhere you go, there's malls. You go to Houston and you drive out towards Galveston, there's a big mall. And they were saying they walked in this church and they felt like they were in a mall. Couldn't help but remind me of John chapter 2. I want you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 2. The Lord Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, talks about a temple, talks about a house of God that had been turned into a mall. John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, we're at the very beginning of the ministry of Christ in Judea. And yet, as the, as the beginning phases of his outreach to the people take place, Jesus is talking about his death and about his resurrection. In fact, we look at verse 13. It says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Can anybody tell me what the Passover is? That's when the death angel passed over the children of Israel. And what did the Jews have to have on the door if they were going to be protected from the death angel? They had to have a lamb's blood. On the 10th day, they would take a lamb into their household. They would take care of it for four days. So the family would really get involved with this little baby lamb or a baby ram. It become like a pet in the family that on the 14th day of the month, the father had to slay that lamb, he had to take that blood and put it on the two sides of the door and at the top of the door and the sign of the cross because God is such a tremendous novelist that he brings all the, the parts of the story, even early in the development of the story, the essence of the story is there. And the door has the sign of the cross and the blood. And everybody had to be in that house underneath that sign and when the death angel flew over, they were protected. And then the Lord delivered the people from slavery, delivered them out of Egypt. And you have that unbelievable story of the parting of the Red Sea and how the Lord created his nation at Sinai. That's all the Passover. Here the Jews were many years later, about 1,400 years later at this point, And the Jews were continuing to celebrate and remember that Passover. Jesus, like a good Jewish man, with his family, went up to Jerusalem. And they would partake in the same ritual that we were just describing. They would take a lamb, they would take care of that lamb, then the lamb would be slain in the temple, and then they would go and eat that Passover meal together on a Friday evening, and they would celebrate the Passover. Jesus is partaking of that feast. Something you wouldn't realize is that John wants us to be aware that we're going to have three Passovers. 
We have this first Passover at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The next year he's going to go up again. There's going to be a second Passover. And then after a three-year ministry, Jesus is going to go up for the final Passover. Early in the story, Jesus wants us to realize his life is about a Passover. It's about alleviating the threat of the death angel of God against sin. And it's right here at the beginning of the story. Jesus went up to Jerusalem and, and in anywhere from the land of Israel that you go, go from Jerusalem, except on Mount Hermon, you go up to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, you can just see that the temple courts we're talking about are the court of the Gentiles. In a lot of ways, it would be like going to the mall because there was a big outer court. And you could walk into that outer court and there'd be hundreds upon thousands of people gathered together in that open court. It's kind of like going to the temple mound today. And after you get by the Israeli guards, you begin to just rub shoulders with hundreds of people that are mulling around this outside courtyard. The first century temple had some of that same feel to it. In the temple courts, he found some men, verse 14. And these men were selling cattle, sheep, and doves. And others were sitting at tables exchanging money. You see, so many Jews came to Jerusalem that they couldn't afford to bring all those animals down. In other words, it would be a hard task. You can ask some of the ranchers in our group to drive all of these rams and lambs and cattle down to the temple. It was too much. So what the priests did is they had their own flock and they would examine, if you did bring your own sacrifice, they would examine that, decide whether or not it was good enough. And if it wasn't good enough, then they had something that was and they charge you a good price for it. They also had a lot of people that just put their money in their pocket, went up to the temple, and they would just take what the priests had in their herds and flocks. Now, you can imagine you have a lot of Jewish people together, and they see a potential for a good business. So you've got a thriving, uh, early Texan kind of stockyard going on here. And you can probably just hear the auctioneers. If, if you want to get the feel of this, think your Fort Worth stock show or some of the other shows that we have around town, around this area, where you hear the auctioneer calling out. That's kind of the feel of what's going on. Only they don't have just cows. They've got birds flying around, you know, and they're making their mess, and, and everyone's yelling and screaming. You've got little kids that are, their mothers are trying to catch up with them. I mean, it's just a, a shambles. Also, you've got some money changers. So you not only have the, all these animals and the noise of selling off all these sacrifices, you also have the money changers. Now, Jesus walks in to this temple that now had the feel of a mall. And I want you to realize that this happened in history. And one of the things I want you to get into as we study the life of Christ is that this Jesus that we talk about is not just someone that evangelists yell and scream about. He's not just someone that we come and think about once or twice a week. He's a flesh and blood living, historical, objective Savior. What was he like? How did he feel as he went through the temple precincts, heard the bleeding of the sheep and the low of the cattle, and he heard the auctioneers calling out, and he saw the money changers making a fast buck on 12% interest. How did he feel about that taking place in the temple precincts? Now, a lot of you have the idea of Jesus, you know, as kind of being an effeminate guy, 
that kind of floats around. I've often used an illustration, you know, never blinks, always floats, and, and never would say boo to anybody. Wake up. We all have the idea, you know, that it's really super religious to be mellow, like I've been sharing with you. Often we equate religion and true faith with mellowness. Jesus was a strong person that can win every man's heart if you'll let him. Jesus is the ultimate man, men. And ladies and little girls, Jesus is the ultimate man. He's the only one that can satisfy the ache in your soul, the yearning in your soul for relationship. Nobody else can satisfy that need. And that's why we're spending this time to get to know him because I think one of the greatest tragedies is that we're often yelling and screaming, trying to get people to be devoted to Christ. We're trying to get people to, to be in love with Christ, trying to get people to serve Christ. And yet if we ask an honest question, well, what is he really like? Why should I love him? Why should I respond to him? Why should my heart yearn for him? We don't really give a strong answer to that. And that's what we're trying to do in our series about the life of Christ. What was Jesus like when he saw this temple being turned into a mall? Look what it says. It says that he made a whip out of cords, a real wimp. He made a whip. He wasn't wimpy. He made a whip. And he got that whip and he drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. And some people have gotten all upset about the fact that Jesus made a whip. Have you ever tried to drive cattle? It takes a whip. And you can just see the Savior roll up his tunic and start driving these animals out. I mean, what a, what a show. Then he starts to go to the money changers, walks right up to one of the changers' tables, and the guy says, well, what do you have there? You want to exchange for Tyrian money? And Jesus takes the whole table, throws it right on the ground. Money's going everywhere, all the denarii, and all the money from the ancient world is spilling all over the place. That's tough. That's strong. A man that's a wimp doesn't do that. Jesus Christ drove those animals out, he drove those money changers out, and look what he says. He says this. Get out of here, in verse 16. How dare you turn my father's house into a house of merchandise? Zechariah chapter 14 said that when the new temple was present, when God began to reveal his glory, that there'd be no merchants in the temple of God. Now I want to share with you, there's nothing wrong with business. The Bible doesn't say there's anything wrong with business. The Bible said there's nothing wrong with earning an honest living. In fact, we all need to do that in order to live. But there's something really, really wrong when we go to pray and we're sold. And the character of Jesus, Jesus Christ, is totally against a religion that becomes a market. One of the things that we're trying to do within our family of believers, we want to share with you, we don't want the gathering together of God's people to ever become a time when you think that you're being sold, that you think someone is trying to, to get into your pocket. In fact, an unbeliever was sharing the other day, as I, as I, in fact, I heard it indirectly, an unbeliever said, you know, if there were men of God that really wanted to present the gospel, they could do it anywhere. They could do it in Sam's warehouse. 
and that's true. The true worship of God takes place in the sanctuary of an individual heart and individual hearts that are gathered together that are in love with the invisible God. How many of you wives, something happens inside your heart when your honey looks at you right in the eye and says, you know what, I loved you when I married you. And I've been thinking about it. And I still love you. In fact, I love you more than I ever did. Now, how many of you wives just go, ah, oh, yuck, another bad news day. My husband's telling me that he loves me again. No, that does something to us. You know, when you get that stir in your heart and you, with one of your kids, maybe they're just sleeping, you know, getting ready to go to bed. They're all bathed in their jammies. And you walk in there and they've got their head in the pillow. And you walk into that room and your heart just bubbles up, doesn't it? You know what that's like. Some of you are doing it with your grandkids. It, the story goes on of love. And your heart just reaches out and you just give them a hug because you just got a hug. And you say, oh, you're my special, special boy, my special girl. How do you think they feel when you express love like that? Do you know why every one of us respond when someone from the depths of their souls say how much they love you? You know why we respond like that? Because we were built for that. And that's what worship is. You see, you believe that Jesus is alive. And He is alive. So when you sing about it, and you affirm it, and you say, Jesus, we love you, we praise you, you've given meaning to our life, His eyes light up like a neon sign. His arms reach out. In fact, He might get so excited, He says, man, I've had it with this struggle with sin we're going to get the end times rolling here. I'm going to get the end times coming to fruition, and I'm going to come back and set up my kingdom. Because that's the kind of a story. A story of love is being written. And that's why Jesus got so mad. There was only one temple court that the nations could come to in the Old Testament. The court of the Gentiles. Only one court that people like us that are Gentiles could come and pray. They could come and meet God because in the Old Testament, everything was centripetal. It was all towards the middle. They all had to come. And yet the Jewish people had turned that temple, that outer court, into a place of selling and buying instead of a place of intimate praise and prayer to God. And they say, okay, Dave, I know how Jesus feels about the temple. I want you to notice something. I thought about that this week. There's a tremendous change that takes place because Jesus, when he's asked about the temple, look what he says. It says in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, it talks about a messianic figure that would have such a zealousness to preserve the house of God that zeal for his house would consume him. It would totally dominate him, which is what caused Jesus to drive the money changers out. There's also a subtle illusion that Jesus' passion for purity and worship, Jesus' passion for the reality of a prayer life with his Father, Jesus' passion for true praise, true fellowship would destroy him. And truly it did. Look what the enemies do. The, the Jews demand it. Now the Jews in the Gospel of John, it's not the Jewish people. In fact, many times people have felt that the Gospel of John was anti-Semitic because it's always talking about the Jews and it's always in a place of hostility. 
The Jews in the Gospel of John equal the scribes and the Pharisees and the leaders of Jerusalem that were antagonistic. They were the, the critical scholars that came and asked John the Baptist all the questions in John chapter 1. So when you read the Jews in the Gospel of John, most of the time it refers to that unbelieving leadership that's hardened their heart, that's trying to preserve the status quo, that doesn't want to let Jesus invade their nice little business transactions that are taking place. They don't want Jesus to invade their worship, their human worship that they've set up. So that's what's happening. The Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? In other words, the Jewish leaders say, why do you have the right to drive these animals out? Now, what should have their attitude have been? What should have been the attitude of these religious leaders when Jesus cleaned out the court of the Gentiles? They should have said, Lord, we can't believe it, that we've allowed things to get this bad. We can't believe it that we've allowed business and we've allowed just money to totally dominate our worship. And we thank you so much that you've cleaned it all out. But they didn't respond like that. They said, what gave you the right to come in here and take over this building and drive all these people out. Where are the bosses here? What gives you the right to do that? Give us a sign. Now, they had some precedent from the Old Testament to ask for a sign. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, it talks about a prophet like Moses that would come and that he would be able to do signs. He would give authentications. Now, I want to share something with you. Deep in your soul, you're saying, prove it to me. I can't. Not on those terms. You see, some of you are doing that with God. You say, all right, God, you prove to me that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and I'll believe in you. I'll tell you what we'll do. Tomorrow morning, if there is dew on my front windshield, then I'll believe Christ rose again from the dead. So tomorrow morning, there's dew in your windshield like there was today. You go, Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. You say, look, that wasn't good enough. Tomorrow, cause there not to be dew on my windshield. Let's reverse so the next morning you go out, and there isn't dew on your windshield. You say, ah, it's just atmospheric pressure. It's just the humidity that's in the air. It's just a chance. If your heart is hard, God could give you a million signs, and he could switch the dew point back and forth, back and forth. You still wouldn't believe, because that's not the issue. I want you to think very hard about that. There's only one kind of person that will not believe that Jesus Christ is their Savior and Lord, and that's the person that just deep in their soul just plain doesn't want to. It's taken me a long time to understand that about people. You know, I used to be so uptight when I preached, I'd be trying to think of the right argument, the right illustration, trying to get the right point, trying to preach with the right emphasis. And man, the Lord Jesus has just graciously gotten me by a whole lot. He says, David, just tell them the truth. Just treat them like people. They're made in the image of God. They've got a will. Just tell them the truth. If their heart wants to know the truth, it'll set them free. If they want to live for themselves, if they want to be arrogant, if they want to live for pride, they'll keep right on doing it. And no sign on the earth could change your mind. You see, Jesus turned the water to wine at Cana of Galilee. That's a pretty good sign, isn't it? I mean, someone that can turn water into water pots of wine, that kind of celebration, that is some Savior. We're going to have a Savior as we go through there that's going to raise the dead. That's pretty good. 
He's going to feed the 5,000 and the 3,000. We've got a Savior that will do tons of signs, but only for those that are ready to receive it. Never for those that demand it. Jesus gave one ultimate sign to those that demanded it. The Pharisees said, give us a sign and that, you, that tells us you have the authority to do these things. And Jesus said, one sign I give you. Look what it says. Destroy this temple, verse 19. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now that is an incredible sign. I'm going to destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? Now what temple are they thinking about? What temple are they thinking about? They look around, they think he's talking about the Herodian temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was much prettier than the Dome of the Rock, which is an awesome building in Jerusalem today. They looked around, Jesus said, I will destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they think he's talking about what? Mortar and bricks. You know, all the way through the Gospel of John, people are going to have that problem. Some of you think, Religion is about mortar and bricks. It's about coming to church. It's about giving money to church. It's about being involved in church. It has very little to do with that. It has to do with the person. That's what Jesus is saying. The Pharisees made the terrible error of thinking that the worship of God, the temple of God, the place where man meets God is a building. And a lot of you still think that. There's people all over the place that think that you meet God in buildings. And that's why we build buildings. That's what the Mormon tabernacle is about. If you go to Utah, you will be awestruck. Watch out. It's very captivating. I've heard some of you saying, oh, you ought to see that place. And you go into that place and, man, the Mormon tabernacle choir begins to sing. And they mix a little bit of American patriotism in it. And, man, you all are gone. Oh, God is in this place. God isn't anywhere near that place. It's heretical. They believe Jesus and Satan are brothers. They deny the deity of Christ. And you're having gooey goosebumps in the middle of a beautiful building and think it's God. Same error the Pharisees make. We all make it. You go to St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. You can't help but be odd. You walk out of this busy Manhattan horn-blowing street Walk into the St. Patrick's Cathedral. I've done it since I was a little kid, all the way up through growing older. Walk in that cathedral. Oh. Stained glass windows you would not believe. Marvelous height, beautiful architecture. Open, spacious, and yet very subtly lighted. And the goosebumps begin to go again. That's not necessarily the worship of God. Because Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. Oh, brothers and sisters, please listen to me. Jesus is the temple where God meets man. It all boils down to, to not how many services we attended to, not how much we gave, not how many plaques are on pews or buildings or anything. It's all about what did we do with the temple of God? What did we do with the person of Jesus? But an incredible thing has happened. Jesus said, I will destroy this temple. It will die on the cross of Calvary. And then on the third day, I'll rebuild it again. I'll conquer your greatest enemy. The Jews totally missed his point. All they could think of was mortar and bricks. 
But the disciples heard and they believed. Because Jesus said he's a temple. And I want you to see another, another change that takes place. John 17 says, I pray that I might be in them and they might be in me. You are the place where God meets man. Jesus lives in your heart. Jesus prayed, I pray that I might ascend to heaven and then I will come to live in them and they will be in me. And that means that we together have become the temple. That's why Paul took the development from the Lord in 1 Corinthians 6 and says, what? Know you not that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? That's what I want you to rejoice in. You can lie down on your bed at night. And you know what? You're the house of prayer. Jesus is saying in John 2, there's no deals to be made. You can't bargain with me. You can't try to con me. You can't try to be good enough for me. What you're going to have to do with me is I already know what's in your heart. You're going to have to open up and let me love you. You're going to have to humble yourself and just let me die on the cross for you. And then you're going to have to let me rise again and create my life in your soul. 